This episode of Bat Chat is brought to you by Die Hard Car Batteries. Die Hard Car Batteries, the battery for you when you need to whack a guy in the stomach with a car battery. Die Hard Car Batteries. I am the night. I am Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big old list, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on tonight? Got a lot on my mind. Thinking about all the people out there, our good Patreon supporters. I got this week my first disbursement of your money, and here I am here to thank you for your support for the show, and let me tell you what your money's going toward. I don't have enough running shirts, Matt, and when I say that I don't have enough running shirts, I have a drawer stuffed with running shirts, but I don't have enough interesting running shirts, and this is a problem for a guy who runs, uh, I don't know, too often. I run socially. So I, I go, I, I meet, you know, pub runners and groups and, you know, I don't want to show up with the same boring ass shirt every week, or I don't want to show up with the same race shirt that I've worn five times. I wanted something new. I wanted something different. So I found, and, and again, if you, if you run, you know that you can't run in like a cotton t-shirt because that just gets sweaty and gross and it stinks and whatever. So I had to find running tech shirts with a little bit of humor, a little bit of life. And I found a company out there. I got a Hawaiian Flaherty shirt. I got uh, a suit and tie shirt and I got a tuxedo shirt. And so that's what your money is going toward. If you're listening to this, putting me in some fine ass running gear and I appreciate it. It's also being used to pay for hosting and to pay for parking when I go into Philadelphia because that app is connected to my PayPal account. Makes my life much ah! easier than having to fumble for quarters. <laughs> so see... You're, you're making our lives better, people. You really are. And eventually, when we've got enough of you, it's going to pay to help me finally set up that comics garage that I've been talking about for nine years. We're getting there. So, so tell your friends. Tell your friends. Help build the comics library of Matt's dreams and help Will buy some more shit he doesn't need. But now you're here for the content that you crave. This week... It's Tales of the Second and Unluckiest Robin, Jason Todd, in an episode we're calling Two Deaths and One Good Day for Jason Todd. And with a title like that, it's pretty obvious where we're going. Story one is A Death in the Family. This is from Batman Volume 1, numbers 426 to 429, written by Jim Starlin, with pencils by Jim Aparo, inks by Mike DiCarlo, colors by Adrian Roy, letters by John Costanza, edited by Denny O'Neill and Dan Raspler, with a cover date of December of 1988 to January of 1989. The Joker has escaped from Arkham Asylum, and while Batman hunts him, Jason Todd makes a startling discovery. The woman he always thought was his mother was in fact not. Now the two quests, Bruce to stop the Joker and Jason to find his mother, head on a collision course where only tragedy waits at their intersection. So you say, Matt, 426 to 429, correct? Yeah, yeah. I've got our list pulled up here, and the list says 425 to 428. This is something that- Maddie Lasers goofed. I did. That list has been there for ages. This was not like a mistake I made in the past like week and a half. That was just up there, and I done goofed up. We will eventually cover 425, although as Will is here to- just stick it to me a little. Our sponsor this night has something to do with that previous issue. And if you've read it, you know what he's talking about. And if you're Chris Sims, one of the internet's other great Batmanologists, you will also know what we're talking about. But we will cover these stories in 424 and 425 in the not-too-distant future. Sunday AD. La la la. <laughs> MSG3K, folks. But we are doing 426 to 429, which is a death in the family. Which, oh, Boy, is this a buck wild fucking story. And, and, and before we go on, I, I want to say how many of you motherfuckers out there could recall from memory the issue numbers for Death in the Family? 
I would have not had a single clue. So don't any of you give Matt shit for being one off. Okay. And if you think, you know, uh, go fuck yourself anyway. Yeah. I had never read death in the family. I, I typically don't like spoil myself for these comics and why go out and like read a summary or read a review before I read it for the first time. Wow. Wow. You get the real sense that as you know, DC editorial is plotting this story out, they probably did not intend to kill Robin because if you're going to kill him off, this is not the story you would have picked to do it in. Yeah. I don't think they anticipated that the legendary phone line. Yes. For those of you out there who are unfamiliar with this particular detail at the end of part two, there was a call-in number, a 900 number, or two 900 numbers. One that you could call to say, kill the little shit, and one that you could say, keep him alive. And if the story is to be believed, and it might be apocryphal, it was a very near thing, but one dude with an auto-dialer basically signed Jason Todd's death warrant, which will show you just how many people hated Jason at this point. But, okay, we read those creators, and this story is written by Jim Starlin. I'm a big fan of Jim Starlin, but generally Starlin in his more cosmic setting, mostly his Marvel stuff, you know, Thanos and Warlock and the Infinity Everything and DC's Cosmic Odyssey, like that's the prime Jim Starlin stuff. He has this run on Batman from the four teens till this story and the Batman the Cult miniseries. And it is some weird shit. So you're saying he has this run for, what, 15 or so issues? Yeah, it's probably from about... I'm trying to think because I know he, Ten Nights of the Beast which he wrote, which was the other sort of big arc from this period, was, I believe, 417 to 420. Let's see if I'm right on this one. Yes, I am. Yeah. Good for me. Yeah. 420. Um, oh, yeah. by the way, since we are recording today on 420, happy to all of those uh, of you who celebrate, even though you're going to be listening to this in the future when it's not 420, but you're going to be high anyway, so it doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, he started a little before 10 Nights of the Beast. And so he started at least at 416, because I know that I remember that issue. So probably, yeah, let's say 15-ish issues plus the cult and culminating in this just what the fuck sort of story. Again, it's it's weird that you want you kill off Robin in this particular story. And basically you have a Batman part-timer do it. Okay. The unknowable mind of DC editorial. Yeah. For those of you out there who haven't read a death in the family. Who are no, just you want to with- role play this? You want to role play it? Absolutely. All right. All right. So uh, you have to sell me on again, killing Jason Todd and killing Jason Todd in this story. Go for it. Okay. So the the Jason Todd plot here is that Jason finds out that his mother wasn't really his mother. So he's okay. Interesting. So he's going to try to find his mother. And okay. Where's his mom? Well, it turns out, well, you got to understand she has a, she's from Gotham. She has this history as a criminal with the Joker. Okay. So that's going to tie it all in. Makes sense. Okay. Oh yeah. 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 but, But she's an Ethiopian. She's this, this crusading doctor now. And, and mix up with the Joker. Well, well, the Joker, he, he's going to Ethiopia to, to use her to, you know, get a bunch of drugs that he can sell to make money because he's broke. Uh, why wouldn't the Joker just steal money? Because he, we need to get him there. But don't worry. Uh, he's, okay, not gonna okay, go, okay. he's not going to go straight there because first he's going to take a nuclear missile and try to sell it to terrorists. Hmm. Okay. All right. The kids might like that. Okay. Okay. I'm still on board. Yeah. So, so, you know, Batman's going to be looking for the Joker and, and the first of the, the, the mothers she's, you know, Israeli, she's like Mossad or something. And she's looking for the nuclear missile. And so she and okay. Batman are going to get to meet that way. And then the second mother, 
But get this. The second mother, Lady Shiva. Uh, uh. And then, in the end, in the end, after the kid either lives or dies, whatever, the, whatever, whatever happens, the Joker becomes the UN ambassador from Iran. Get the fuck out of my office. That is honest to God what happens in this story. For the last issue of this story, the Joker is dressed in fairly offensive faux... And by fairly, I mean very offensive faux-Iranian garb and representing Iran to the United Nations. And that's removing some of the other stereotypes and issues and all of the other things set in the Middle East and in Ethiopia. I just, I, I can't believe the places this thing goes. They treat it like a serious story. Like these are double stuffed issues. Like, a, yeah, I know the first one specifically is almost 50 pages long. The first two are both basically two issues crammed into one. I'm pretty sure this was written as six issues and parts one and two are just issue one and issue two, issue three and issue four, because there are recaps at the beginning of the middle parts of those issues. So it feels like there were supposed to be two issues that they just sort of sandwiched into one. And yet they just go in these wacky places. And I will tell you, when I read this, This is one of the first trades I ever got. So I was reading this when I was probably nine or 10 years old. Nine or 10 year old, Matt, thought this thing was fucking awesome. (laughs) It's it's this globe trotting adventure and Batman's fighting the Joker. And there's all these big action set pieces and stuff. And then not 10 year old Matt is reading it. I'm like, oh, my God. I don't know what's worse, the offensive stereotypes or the wild contrivances to get all of this to work. I I think for me, this is what really shines in one of the other stories we'll get to tonight. To make the monumental decision to kill off a Robin, it needs to be a really grounded story. It needs to be basic. It needs to be simple. It needs to focus on what does killing Robin mean? And this story is everything but that. And it's, it's so stunning to see the consequences from this story, how death in the family is, I won't say that it's revered, but it's a, it's a critical moment in the history of DC. And we, you know, we revisit the whole concept later with death of the family. And you sit down and actually read the thing, and it's not serious at all. It is as unserious as you could possibly be Again, killing off a Robin. It swings wildly from dark humor to camp to some seriously bleak material. Uh, I mean, Aparo sells the hell out of the pages of Joker beating Jason with a crowbar. You don't see Jason. You see Joker. It's just this series of staccato panels of the Joker raising and lowering the crowbar. And then next time when you see the Joker, he is drenched in blood. And yet the story can't even treat that as seriously as it deserves because somehow Todd survives being beaten to death with a crowbar to die in the subsequent explosion. There's, there's nonsense at every turn in this story. And this is, of course, the vagaries of working in a shared universe that you couldn't have the most important interaction Bruce could have after this anytime soon because Nightwing was on an adventure in space with the Titans. (laughs) So Dick Grayson doesn't appear in this story. Dick's first confrontation with Batman about the death of Jason Todd does not take place in a bat title. It takes place in Titans, which granted was Dick's home book at the time. He wasn't really a member of the Batman family, but it's wow. 
I mean, that that little bit of role playing there sort of summed up a lot of this, but it's just the Joker has a cruise missile. He has a cruise missile that he tries to sell to Lebanese terrorists. And of course, he sells it to them. And it's not necessarily a dud, but he fucked up the launcher. So when they try to launch it, it just blows up. And thank whatever God there is in the DC universe that he didn't set off the warhead. And it is addressed in the line, which I had to to specifically write, obviously, as a nuclear engineer, the Joker makes a good psychotic killer. Let's make (laughs) that joke while the nuclear warhead is still sitting there unexploded, as opposed to getting the fuck away from it. The warhead that Batman says has been leaking radiation this entire time. Yeah, let's keep hanging around that while we make jokes. Meanwhile, the second bit, as I said, is Lady Shiva, who I found it odd that she's addressed as Shiva Wusan the entire time when that's not her, her real first name. Her name is Sandra. She's Lady Shiva, but her name is Sandra Wusan. So why was she as Shiva Wusan in this book of Jason Todd's father? And also, how the fuck did this guy know Lady Shiva? Yeah, yeah. So let's let's go back and like fill in this detail because this is bonkers. Willis Todd, relatively low-level hood in Gotham, right? He's he's an associate of Two-Face. He keeps an address book. In his address book, there are three S names. Jason Todd is gifted a box of family papers, which includes the address book and Jason Todd's original birth certificate, which has been water damaged. And it says on mother's name, not Catherine, correct? Yes. Who he presumed was his mother. It is a mysterious S name that has been smudged out. So the young detective looks through his father's address book pulls out three S names. And I, I love the moment where Bruce finally catches up with Jason and Jason explains what he's been doing. And Bruce says, none of those women have to be your mother. And Jason's like, yeah, I know, but I just feel like they are. I feel like these random entries in my dad's address book, one of them is going to be the woman he banged to make me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jay Bird. That's 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 how that works. Oh, and of course, all of them are globe-trotting assassins and or humanitarians who were former assassins or criminals. And none of this is believable, right? Because he's just like like I said, just a common low-level criminal who should not be doing business with this level of espionage right and his actual mother when we finally meet her sheila haywood she sells him out to the joker because she had been had her finger in the till and if somebody investigated the joker it would have found her out and she really didn't think the joker was just gonna kill the kid Or did she? And she didn't care. And only at the last minute had a moment of conscience. Oh, he was a good boy. Dies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She 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 just gets blown up, too. Like she she greets him with affection. She turns on them and then she loves him again in the span of, I don't know, six pages. And let's not forget the beginning of part three of this story. A 22 page comic has eight pages of recapping Jason's entire life as Bruce digs through the rubble of the exploded warehouse. Eight pages that could have been used for any number of more interesting things than a recap of Jason Todd's life. You know, I complain every time about DC not having recaps or recap pages. So you know what? I'm going to cut them some slack this time. This one time, because okay. I like I like things to be overly recapped than no recap at all. Okay, I, I will give you that. 
not everyone is me with their nigh-eidetic memory and their encyclopedic knowledge of Batman. And I guess a lot of people might have been picking up that issue with the beautiful Mignola covers on all four of these issues, by the way. But the cover of Jason getting blown up. So, so we've talked about all of that. And, and as I said, then we get to part four, where the Joker is suddenly the UN ambassador to Iran. There is a cameo in part three by the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, which, <laughs> what the ever-loving fuck? Not getting that in today's DC book. We'd have to uh, invent a Middle East country. Oh, yeah. That's what shot that all of this, despite the any number of fictitious Middle Eastern countries that existed at this point. Nope. This is Lebanon and this is Iran. And then you've got Ethiopia, which is African. I know that's not Middle Eastern. I'm just saying you've got three real countries here. And somehow the Joker is killing people in the name of Iran in the United Nations. And the Joker is being casually racist to his Iranian guards. There are a few decent sequences. I mean, that, that stuff with the Joker, at least initially beating Jason, is really like, wow, that's, it's really well drawn. And as the Joker walks into the General Assembly and Bruce Wayne has gotten himself sort of a day pass to sit amongst the U.S. delegation, the Joker just stops and stares at him and then just starts to laugh and walks away is, I think, the first real concrete hint that the Joker knows and just doesn't care, which is cool. Psychotic. Oh, oh yeah. And then, A, somehow the Joker makes it onto the United Nations floor under, you know, weirdly colored faux Iranian robes wearing tanks of Joker venom. Yeah, you've absolutely got diplomatic immunity. and Oh, so much talk of diplomatic immunity. But they're still going to check you over because you can't bring a weapon onto the UN floor. So how did he get past with friggin' tanks of Joker venom? I imagine the Joker probably smells. And so nobody wants to, uh, to check him out. Okay. But fortunately, Superman's there to suck up all the Joker venom and fly it off. The Joker then, of course, dies, quote unquote, you know, a normal Joker, like, you know, helicopter crash. So there's no body. And it just ends with Batman knowing that there will be no body and this will all end, quote, unresolved. Damn you, Blofeld. I did not remember how completely insane this story is. You remember part three. The end of part two, or I guess chapter four, the one where Jason meets his mother and dies. And you remember that the last bit, because there's no way you forget the Joker as the UN ambassador to Iran. No. The beginning stuff with the, the cruise missile and Lady Shiva and all of that, just, it's like, where the hell... And then there should have been so much more gravitas in the stuff with Bruce dealing with Jason's death. And that doesn't come until A Lonely Place of Dying and the stuff that sort of runs up to that. When Marv Wolfman, year three, that's when you start really dealing with the emotional fallout of Jason's death. This just is, er, Batman angry, Batman hunt Joker. Diplomatic community. Revoked. It it feels like, (laughs) when did Lethal Weapon 2 come out? Oh, gee, right before the end of Apartheid. Hey, 1989. So you know what? Right after this story. So this was not inspired by Lethal Weapon 2, but boy, it kind of feels like it, doesn't it? As, uh, as Abigail said, they were really thinking about diplomatic immunity in the 80s. Were they ever? But I, I think without Jason Todd's death, we could chalk this up as, as just another you know zany story from a period that was, I think, basically working the zaniness out of its system. But you can't have that and then also have... Robin's death. Those those two things are fundamentally incompatible. So this is going to be an interesting thing to put on the list in that it's a historical moment 
in a story that fucking flops right on its face. Yeah. And I think that might be where we, we move right into that. So it's time to put death of the family on the big board. We currently have 102 stories on our big old list. Story number one is Batman Year One from Batman Volume One, numbers 404 to 407. Story number 25 is Gothic, a romance from Legends of the Dark Knight, numbers 6 through 10. Story number 50 is Going Sane from Legends of the Dark Knight, numbers 65 to 68. And at 69, we've got Mad Men Across the Water from Showcase 94. Nice. 75 is Luthor, You're Driving Me Sane from Joker, Volume 1, number 7. And all the way down to the bottom at 102 is Batman White Knight. All right. So, um, oh boy. This is, this is a, this is a head scratcher. Yeah, this is this is really difficult because you know we have a seminal moment in DC history, but as I said, it's a, it's a totally fucking flops. And at the very top of our list, we have important books that are well done, like Dark Knight Returns. You know, we can quibble with the material, we could say what we want, but it was an important moment in a book that succeeded for what it was trying to do, and that's why it's currently at number seven. I don't think we have anything else on the list like this that is such a pivotal book that is so terrible. Yeah. I mean, there's some of the golden age stuff, like, you know, the first Batman story, which is all the way down at 92. But that's really, as we've said, every time we've talked about it, not a Batman story. That's shadow fanfic with a Batman looking character in it. It's not really a Batman story yet. I mean, I, I feel that we're in, you know, speeding bullets, Holy terror, Catwoman volume one, like somewhere around in there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at it. This does not fall into the bottom 12. This is above number 90. Number 90 is that, one two-part Scarecrow story where Scarecrow is whining about the bullies for an entire issue. Uh, so yeah, this is better than that. And I think to put it much higher on this list, we have to focus on to get the historical import. But on its face, on its merits, 70s, 80s is where this thing belongs. And the Jim Aparo art. Aparo does a, it's a, a solid looking book. It's not hugely flashy, but it is very competently put together. Some of sure. the fight scenes, the fight scene between Batman and Lady Shiva, which we really didn't talk much about, looks really nice. But as an example, while you were not a huge fan of it, Club of Heroes at 74 is better looking. That J.H. Williams art is real nice and is more competently written. Morrison does some interesting stuff in that book. So I'm not, I, I don't think it belongs above 74, above Club of Heroes, say. Okay, here's a good, here's a good point. We got 76, we've got Shaman. Another book with some wildly problematic elements has not as much historical significance, but is still a somewhat significant book in that, it's the first arc of Legends of the Dark Knight. Yeah, yeah, that that might be the best comparison point we have, and I think I think we're looking at about the right spot. Yeah, yeah, we're in the seventies. I want to say seventy-five, just because it is definitely more important than a random issue from a Joker volume that again, didn't even get to, to finish its print run. But I see nothing, as, as you said, I had no reason why it should be above Club of Heroes. I'm good with that. I am good with 75. All right. That's numbers 426 to 429. <laughs> I, I am never going to forget that now. That's for sure. 425, though, perfectly good read. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to doing uh, 424, 425. I actually think those might be better stories than Death in the Family. Although they once again deal with diplomatic immunity. It's just been revoked. Okay. So now moving on to our next story, Last Crusade. This is The Dark Knight Returns, The Last Crusade one-shot, written by Frank Miller and Brian Azzarello, with pencils by John Romita Jr., inks and colors by Peter Stegervald, letters by Clem Robbins, edited by Mark Doyle, Rebecca Taylor, and Dave Wilgosh. The cover date is August 2016. In this prelude to The Dark Knight Returns, we see an aging Batman deal with his own mortality and the death of Jason Todd. You know, I didn't expect this to be the better death of Jason Todd going in. I know, right? But but it really kind of is because it's really about the death of Jason Todd and what that means. And the preconditions that were necessary for Jason Todd to basically die and for it to have an emotional impact. So we have to have one... Jason Todd, who's constraining against the boundaries that Bruce wants to put on him. We have to have a Robin, true to the Jason Todd character, a Robin who is kind of on edge, who's kind of angry and unsettled. And what we have in Last Crusade, which is one of my favorite Batman stories, is a Batman who can't physically do this anymore, which ties into Dark Knight Returns well. You know, Batman is older he wants to start thinking about giving up the mantle he's not ready to do it but he's he's thinking about it he wants to get to that place and you could clearly see what jason todd's death would do to this character it would make him say i physically i can't do it anymore and emotionally i can't do it anymore and the jason here is this sort of darker character the one in Death in the Family, sure, he has he's impetuous, but he's sort of a little whiny at times, a little broken. There's a lot of talk about how all, a lot of his issues have to do with the death of his parents and him sort of still processing that. This Jason, there's moments where it's very clear he just doesn't mind the brutality. And that makes him a much scarier character, a character that Bruce really needs to rein in versus a character that Bruce needs to talk to. Because the prime Earth or whatever what you want to call it, Earth, Jason Todd from the Death in the Family, Bruce really could have just you know sat down with him and talked it out. This Jason has some much deeper issues. Yeah, he's clearly broken. He's he's enjoying this too much. There's a great panel where he's covering his mouth and Bruce is, you know, I know he's covering a smile after he's thoroughly beaten one of the Joker's thugs. I know we'll get to this eventually. I think I might have glanced at Strikes Again. I maybe tried to read the first issue or the first two issues of master race i have found a lot of late stage frank miller just basically unreadable trash how much of this book do you think you can credit to azarello i think a lot of it and i think this is better azarello i've said before i can take or leave a, a lot of azarello's work But this is him really working. And unfortunately, Master Race is him not. But I wonder if Miller had more control on Master Race, more of his thumb on the scale for that one. Because they technically worked on that one together as well. But I think a lot of this is probably Azzarello. Because this is not unreadable. And there's material here. There are character beats here. This is also possibly the least problematic Catwoman that has ever been in anything that Frank Miller has written. Selena, she's not Catwoman at this point. She's retired. But she's not 
anywhere near as problematic as the Madam of Dark Knight or the sex worker of Batman Year One. The poorly written Madam and poorly written sex worker. She is every bit of Batman's equal in this book. A friend, a confidant, a lover, trying to nurse him through this period in his life. She's a voice of reason. You can feel how broken Bruce is in this book. You see him over and over again, missing just one or two steps. He's not so far gone yet, but you realize that a Batman past his peak, Batman who just misses that one step is a Batman who can't cut it anymore. There's one panel and we rarely see this level of physical vulnerability. You know, he's getting up in the morning. He makes sure to not do this in front of Jason, but Alfred has to help him to the bathroom. And I'm like, that this is a real, you know, sign of what what physical toll this war on crime has taken on Bruce's body. And we see scars all the time. We see scars all the time, but we don't see that level of physical fragility. And I really respect that. And that just gets you that gets you sucked into this book and sucked into this character. And it's not clubbed. Like you could have kept punching on that, but they didn't. It's just one or two panels there. I mean, his combat is clearly limited, but you could have had every scene that was Bruce not out as Batman with him, you know, walking on canes or being like, no, you don't need to drive it home because that bit you talked about is so strong that it doesn't require the clubbing. And also the fact that he's nearly taken out twice by Killer Croc. Croc is a fine character, but if Batman's going to go down, it's not going to be at the hands of Killer Croc. He himself says it. It's a great moment. I always thought I'd be outsmarted, not beaten like this, which is just Croc punching him. And, And he's got another great line in there. God, I just don't want to be eaten. Like, darkly funny, but that that hits, like, really seriously. Like, Bruce is just like, if I'm going to die, please, I don't, want to, I don't want to become, you know, killer croc shit. We can really respect that. Yeah. And again, I, and it's not like, what I can't remember is Azarello has also had some issues over the years in some of his other work, like 100 Bullets or Moonshine with female characters that are kind of uncomfortable, but the way Selena is handled here and the way Ivy is handled here. Yes, we're dealing with more the femme fatale Ivy than the eco-terrorist Ivy, which is odd for a book in 2016 when Ivy has really become the eco-terrorist at that point. But this isn't the horrid vampy sex pot of widening gyre. She's just using those pheromone powers to drive the rich men of Gotham mad and to get all their money. And she's not letting them touch her. She's not sleeping with anybody. She's just stringing them along. Yeah. And nothing in that felt, you said this, like nothing in in that story felt problematic when it comes to Ivy. I, I can't think of any beat in there where I was like, whoa, this is wrong. That's too much. That's that's a sour note. I enjoyed this story the first time I read it, and I enjoyed it just as much as this time. Frank Miller ain't as good as he once was, but in this book, he's as good once as he ever was. I, I don't think I put it at the top, but we've done it of the other times we talked about Miller, problematic creator watch, Islamophobia, all sorts of issues with women. Miller is a problematic dude just saying it now here in the middle because can't make that clear enough no big old asshole yep and this is probably the best joker in that universe he's way less homophobically coded i'm not even saying homosexually coded but I always felt like the way the Joker is written as queer coded as he was in Dark Knight is very much a homophobic reaction. 
you don't queer code a villain like that unless you're saying, at least on some level, oh, look at how evil and depraved this is. But here, this is a Joker very much in the model of Hannibal Lecter. Yes, yes, yes. And how many times have we talked about that as that's the best Joker? He almost literally does the thing that Lecter does, where Lecter talks the guy in the next cell into killing himself. Suddenly, all of these minor Arkham inmates are gouging out their own eyes and doing these terrible things to themselves because the Joker just talked them into it. Joker said I would taste good. Uh I did. I did. (laughs) And in the end, the Joker gets out of Arkham by starting a prison riot and then just walking out yeah grabbing a cap and hitting the road it's a great moment it's a great thing with the joker just being the creepiest fucker out there and in the very end you don't actually see jason's death you know it's coming but you see jason get in over his head in both of these stories Jason disobeys Batman's orders. But in Death in the Family, you're supposed to have this sort of sympathetic moment where Jason is doing it to save his mom. Here, it's like, no, Jason just thought he knew better. And oops, he didn't. Yeah, it's Batman who's been banged up. He he can't go out on patrol tonight. Todd says, I'm headed out. And then the book basically closes right as he's about to get murdered. And that was such a perfect place to end this, right? You didn't need an epilogue of Bruce putting down the mantle. Like this just ends at precisely the right moment. Also with Bruce thinking that with Jason, he could train him. He's rough, but he could get there. And then he could train him, quote, from the cave, a retired warrior philosopher. Bruce is ready, but Jason only heard the beginning of Bruce's conversation with Alfred about how Jason wasn't ready and Bruce wasn't sure if he ever would be. And he just stormed out without waiting for Alfred and Bruce to finish his conversation. And there's a tragedy there. This, far more than death in the family, is all on Jason. There isn't the extenuating circumstance of Jason's mother. This is just Jason screwed up and he paid for it. And now all of Gotham pays for it in the end because Batman can't keep going. And that note about Batman basically not being able to retire, not being able to have that happy ending, such a good note, right? Batman sees this future. He, he sees the equivalent of not not the good death that he always wants, but the good life, right? He can continue the war on crime. He can continue mentoring. He can rest, not completely, but he can let his body heal and he can have this warrior poet ending. And and it gets taken from him in the blink of an eye. And I just, I just, again, there are so many things that this book does perfectly, just perfectly. And you would not have ever expected it. No, it's shocking because I went in, I remembered reading it and being like, huh, you know, by comparison to all the other stuff that was going on around it, I remember this being not too bad. And then maybe reading it right on the heels of having reread Death in the Family, I'm like, wow, this is actually quite good. I'm really impressed by a lot of this is some of the best latter John Romita Jr. I've seen. He does a really good job with this book. His Batman is broad, which works for Romita's sort of blocky style. His croc is gigantic and human. This isn't the mutated crocodile man croc. This is man with a skin condition croc. His Joker is eerie. His Jason is as life as a John Romita character can look since they're all sort of big and blocky, but it's, it's a really well put together comic. And I have the hardcover deluxe edition that has all the variant covers 
and Miller's original plot in the back. So there's some there's some neat bonus material. And I got that at an Ollie's bargain outlet for like <laughs> five bucks for the hardcover. So like, okay, I will take that for five bucks. That is is worth the five bucks. See, now the only time I saw a comic at Ollie's was Punk Rock Jesus. And oh. I'm really bummed out now. The Ollie's by me, I gotten some really like they had a lot of Marvel, like you know, just Marvel liquidating trades. But every now and then they had some of the new 52. I got my uh, long Halloween noir edition, the long Halloween reprinted in black and white at an Ollie's. They seem to kind of get books for a while and they stop carrying them for a while and they get some more in. The one by me is currently in between graphic novels now, they're just sort of selling whatever dregs remain. And there's also always some real shit mixed in there too, like some punk rock Jesus. Again, a lot of that early new 52 stuff that is not good. But every now and then you get a gem. And this was one of my my better Ollie's finds. Uh, do you remember reading over that plot? Did you give that a glance? Anything I interesting from that? I gave it a glance. It was pretty close. But, I mean, there were definitely some changes, but I meant to have it up here with me in my podcasting closet and i left it downstairs because i was in something of a rush after slicing my finger on a cat food can because that's the kind Thanks, of night Bess. i was having yeah that's the kind of night i was having but you know what it's bat chat night i'm wearing my tim drake t-shirt it's always a good night when i'm recording bat chat in my tim drake t-shirt even though it's a jason todd episode i don't have a jason todd t-shirt so tim drake it is well we'll get you we'll get you a robin costume with some fake blood on it that's your jason todd <laughs> there we go the one thing that did ring a little eh in this for me was there is at least one page that is a flat out TMZ pastiche. And that was kind of dated even, you know, a few years later, while the talking heads in Dark Knight always felt pretty timeless for as many other things as are dated in Dark Knight. Just two talking heads going back and forth on a news show felt much more like something you'd still see than this flat out easy TMZ riff. Yeah. And it's clearly a TMZ thing too. Like it's got a guy with their, the drink and you know, if you've seen an SNL skit, like, you know exactly what the jokes would be. Yeah. I agree. That's a bit too try hard for, for what they're trying to do. Yet still better than the flat out use of Donald Trump in master race. So, oh, apparently I gave up. Yeah, before towards, we got to that part. It was towards the end and it was still pre-president Trump. Like this was, you know, right up to the run up to that. And there was a whole, you know, they don't call him Trump, but he talking about building a wall to keep out the aliens, a wall in space. Ugh. Yeah, it, it was real tryhardy. But if that's the worst I have to say about this book. It's it's in pretty good it's in a pretty good place. We got anything else? I don't think so. That means it's time to put Dark Knight Returns: The Last Crusade on the big board. We're going up. We're going up. As much as it pains me, as much as it absolutely pains me, I think this is top twenty. I agree. I think somewhere in between 15 and 20. I think To Kill a Legend at 15 is still better. It's more compact. It has that really great idea that Batman can come from a place of joy and gratefulness rather than just a place of vengeance. I'm not sure how much lower it goes than that. We have the benefit of this not being that historically significant true and that's detective comics 500 to kill a legend that's historically that's a a milestone of an issue so i think we're definitely 16 17 you know this is this is safe territory of course interestingly enough our next story will also be historically significant but is not really a batman story so that'll be an interesting thing to place because we have 18 Wonder Woman, the Heiketia, which is not a Batman story. It's Batman as antagonist. But it's a good ass story. Oh, but it's a great and gorgeous. The, the J.G. Jones art and that is phenomenal. 
Then we have Mad Love, which has problematic elements, but is historically significant as it's the first appearance of the Harley Quinn origin. I want to say either 16 or 19. So either above Six Fingers or above Mad Love. I'm leaning towards 19. I think Heiketia is a tremendous, thoughtful book. Beautiful People is a perfect one shot with incredible art. And Six Fingers is your baby. It is my baby. But you know what they always say, kill your darlings. Oh, believe me. That's why Blades is as low as it is. 62, Uh, 62. Yeah. I think this is our new 19. All right. Works for me. That gives us three Frank Miller books in the top 20. You know, back when Miller could write stuff that wasn't pure Islamophobia, he could write some good comics. And when he's working with somebody who isn't letting him write pure Islamophobia, you've got some decent comics. All right. Now, for that one good night for Jason Todd, we have... For the man who has everything. This is Superman Volume 1, Annual Number 11. The writer is Alan Moore. The penciler is Dave Gibbons. Inks also by Gibbons. Colors by Tom Ziuko. Letters also by Dave Gibbons. Edited by Julia Schwartz and E. Nelson Bridwell. The cover date of September of 1985. It's Superman's birthday. And as Batman, Robin, Jason Todd and Wonder Woman go to the Fortress of Solitude to wish the Man of Steel a happy birthday. They find him wrapped in a mysterious plant. In his mind, Superman is on a Krypton that did not explode, where he lives with a family, a wife, and children he loves, and a father he is distant from. What has caused this? Why is Superman in this fantasy? And what is waiting in the Fortress of Solitude to do in our heroes? I'll start with this. How familiar are you with uh, Southern literature, Matt? Uh, not tremendously, but my literature is, is fairly solid. What do you know of Ghost Set of Watchmen? I've not, I mean, I know it's the other book by Harper Lee. Aside from that, not terrible much. So I haven't read it. So the, the preface it with, with that, but... To Kill a Mockingbird is this classic piece of American literature. It is my opinion, as someone who has been in a community theater version of To Kill a Mockingbird, that the book is crap, that it is, uh, it's white apologia, uh, it's, it's garbage. Uh, Atticus Finch is no hero. He, he only serves the status quo. Anyway, uh, Ghost at a Watchman imagines Atticus all grown up and old. Uh, well, not that he wasn't grown up and To Kill a Mockingbird, but uh, it imagines him as old and bitter. And it's the story that I believe Harper Lee wrote first. And basically the, the agents and the publishers at the time told her, yeah, we're not ready for this, basically. And I got a real sense of that as I'm reading this alternate future in which, oh, remind me of that goddamn Cretonian name. Jorel. Yeah, I can never keep them straight. I know Kal-El, but after that, it gets real confusing. Jor-El is old and bitter. He's kicked off of the Science Council because Krypton didn't explode. And Kal-El's like, oh, you just you just wish the planet had exploded, Dad. And he falls into like the Kryptonian equivalent of, you know, make America great again and America first parties. And it's wild and dark. It is 1985. Yeah, you, you got to re- read that because you read this and you're looking at these guys that Jor-El is the, the chairman of. And it's like, these motherfuckers are going to storm the Capitol. <laughs> I got torches and everything. Yeah, there's robes. It shows you that history, it's, it's, it's melodies and refrains that there's nothing new under the sun. But, but I mean, that's, that's the fantastical part of this. The, the Superman trapped inside the Black Mercy. This plant that gives you your deepest desire. Except he's Superman, so there's some part of him that knows it's false. And so he's fighting it by making his fantasy into a horror. This is an Alan Moore story. 
back before Alan Moore was all about snake gods, uncomfortable sexual material, and being ahead of the curve curve on hating Harry Potter. Uh, (laughs) He was doing that ages before everybody else was. But this is more, more at the height of his powers. This is more right around Watchmen. So this is, is a, a major piece of Superman history. This is a significant book in Superman history. It's in fairly early appearance of Mongol, who's the villain behind this, the one who infects Superman with this black mercy, which becomes one of Mongol's shticks moving forward. He he's uses that black mercy more than once after this, never to quite as good effect as this story. But as I said, this story makes this list because Batman, Jason, and Wonder Woman are in this story. Jason has plays a pivotal role in this story. It's to save the day. Yeah, Jason is in really good form here. This is still pre-crisis, Jason, by the way. This is not young punk Jason. This is knockoff of Dick Grayson, Jason. It also is before Mongol was severely watered down until the recent Philip Kennedy Johnson action comics run. This is when Mongol was actually a scary threat, when he was a truly powerful, terrifying threat. Granted, Wonder Woman, pre-crisis Wonder Woman was not as powerful as post-crisis Wonder Woman is. At least it never felt like it was. She couldn't fly. I don't think she was ever quite as right on Cal's level of power, but she holds her own against Mongol, but Mongol is still winning pretty handily against Wonder Woman, which is still something that is not easy for someone to do. This, by the way, has a panel that does get memed every now and then of Batman with Jason saying, think clean thoughts, chum. (laughs) It's a great panel. One day we'll do that meme episode. Oh, we will. That is definitely on the list once some of those issues become easier to come by. There is a real core of emotion in this story. The stuff going on with Superman is really impactful. That he's living an everyday life that Superman could never live. And he has a family. And it, it's a simple life, too. It's a simple life in a fantastical world, but he's, he's a geologist, right? He's not a, he's not a politician. He's not saving Krypton. He's just a guy. And that's, that's remarkable in a Superman story. And there's a moment right at the end of that bit when after seeing this, for want of a better analogy, the Make Krypton Great Again rally, he takes his son and he pulls their speeder off the side of the road and he just looks he they get out and he's looking at his son and he just says i i don't think you're real and it's just it kills you and for those of you out there who aren't patreon backers one of the books we will be covering or actually will have covered by the time this episode drops for our patreon bonus episodes will be the uh, Justice League Unlimited adaptation of this story, which does sand off some of the political edges, but really plays up that emotional stuff, really plays up how hard it is for Superman to say goodbye to this world. And it's tremendously impactful there as well. And then seeing him come out of it And you see Superman do something he very, 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 very rarely does. He cuts loose. Gets angry. Oh, yeah. When he goes at Mongol, he goes at Mongol. And I'd have to go back and look if this was indeed the first time. But it is one of the first times where Superman uses his heat vision on a living sentient being. Mongol's got him by the head. Superman just looks looks up at him and says, burn. And it's, oh boy, a 400 mile an hour wind slams into him like a steam hammer as big as the world. Superman hitting Mongol. That Alan Moore, he can write. He can write when he's, you know, trying and when he's not trying to teach us about magic. I mean, he can still write then, but it gets a bit didactic. So, of course, this 
book made me think of a next generation episode, Matt. Tell mm-hmm. the good people what it was. Are we thinking the inner light? Oh no, we're we thinking a different one. Yeah. Which one? My, I, 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 I'm, it's tickling the back of my brain, but I'm. What's the episode where Riker goes to sleep and oh, he wakes up? Yeah. Yeah. Aging. Oh, wow. Future imperfect. Yes. Future imperfect. Yes. My brain was thinking that the internet, because that's, you know, the other, but yeah, because that's the first one I think of when someone's living another life. But yes. Oh, that is a good, that's a good episode. Yeah, and it's uh, it's it's sort of the same notes t- here because you know Riker wakes up with a son he doesn't know, and he slowly starts to suspect that this ain't real. That's yeah, that's a good ass episode. Yeah. Meanwhile, we also once the Black Mercy gets pulled off Superman, it winds up on Bruce, and you don't see a lot of Bruce's fantasy, but I mean, the the first beat of it is obvious. The you know Thomas Wayne was able to stop. Joe Chill. That that would have been a fantasy I would have liked to see more of. Other than you know, he says, you know, I, I I pictured myself with Kathy Kane and us having a teenage daughter. Again, this is something the animated adaptation does differently. And you can join us on Patreon. You can hear us talk about that. But in the end, it is Jason who saves the day. It's Jason who picks up these gloves that Mongol had to handle the Black Mercy and who gets it off of Bruce. And who winds up finding a way to move it and to drop it onto Mongol. It's really cleverly done. And I like that Jason gets the hero moment here. That he's the most out of place. The the three pillars of the DC universe and the second Robin who nobody likes. But, But Jason has a he has a hero moment. He gets to do this thing and he does it cleverly. And if, if Jason had stayed this Jason, he probably wouldn't have died, but he would have been a considerably less interesting character because this Jason is just, hey, it's Dick Grayson. They would have had to have done something different with him eventually. Yes, you, oh, no doubt. As comics got more mature, early Jason Todd stuff, we're going to get to it someday, but it's, it's a little different because there's this whole regular subplot involving Jason's adoption and Nocturna, and it's, it's a whole thing. But Jason himself is just still the, you know, sort of good kid. And the, the problem was it feels like they overcorrected a little. Like Max Allen Collins had it right in that first Jason Todd story. Jason was rough around the edges, but he wasn't a bad kid. Until he got sent to Ma Gun. Yeah. But then you get that the story you that you read the 424, 425, where Jason might be a little homicidal. And that's a line that you don't cross. And it made Jason a character that wasn't as easily redeemable. And I'm curious if they did that to justify a death in the family, because it's not like the reaction to those stories could have caused the death in the family, especially because the death in the family came out of those four issues came out of over the course of a month and a half. It seems three of them are cover dated the same month. So they had to come out pretty much weekly, but it's, this isn't a Batman story. This isn't even really a Robin story. This is a phenomenal Superman story that has a couple of great Robin moments in it. And there are so very few stories where Jason has a good day. I was like, I, I, this is a classic, and I kind of wanted to throw it in there, but it's it's what it is for for that. I don't know how much more we have to say about it. That's all I got. Well, that means it's time to put Superman Annual number eleven on the big board. Okay, so we've got an interesting conundrum because this is a really good comic. This is a really good comic that tells a really good story but is not really a Batman story. Now, we've got a story like that. We've got the Heiketia at 18, but there's much more Batman to that than there is Batman and Robin to this. I, well, I th- we got to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, top 35. Yes, definitely top 35. No doubt in my mind. If we were ranking the best comics on this list, 
it would probably be top 10, but it is not a Batman story. So I don't think it can go that high because we're looking at it as a piece of Batman material. I would even, I would put it somewhere right around 30. I think it probably is, it's, it's definitely better as enjoyable as that is, as going straight laughter after midnight, the Batman Adventures annual at 30. For how yeah. prescient it is, how smart in general, I think it goes above that. Above that is only takes a night. That one-off where Bruce and Selena go out on a date from Brubaker and Phillips. I love that book. Love that book. But again, this is considerably more significant. But then you but go. There's above, more Batman in that. There is more Batman in that. This book is either going to be our new 29 or our new 30. Because it's not beating Demon's Quest, the first Rachel Ghoul right above that. Mm. That is a too significant a Batman story. So do we put it above only takes a night? My gut says no. Again, for all of you Superman fans out there, this is not a condemnation of this as a comic. This is a phenomenal comic. But we have to look at this and weigh the Batman-ness of it. And I think that makes this our new number 30. This job, it's a tough one. It is. Remember when we just had to rank three stories, like our very first night? It was really easy. It's getting harder every week. We, We need more episodes where it's all really bad. So we can just rag on it for a while. And then stick it at the bottom of the list. Those are easy nights. Except we don't want to read those comics. So No. So it looks like that does it for the night. Because we we really want to continue angering the Superman fans out there. Sorry, Corey. Yeah. And our other good friend and Patreon backer, Tony Thornley, who covers Superman over at Comics XF. Because next week, our theme is Batman versus Superman. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, the conduit of outdated joke names. It's a mouthful, June. <laughs> Joshua Wheel, Abigail Hartbaum, Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, Kyle Still, and Christian Smith for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Music slash Audible, and a Comics XF where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shout-outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin, and I'm out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books for my other show, WMQ&A, my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>